Book Review of King Richard by Michael Dobbs King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy Reviewed by Rick Ryman This year, the 49th anniversary of the Watergate break-in by five men connected to Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, Michael Dobbs has just published King Richard, a new entry in the long effort to understand the downfall of the 37th president. Although the book has a serviceable subtitle, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy, a more accurate description of the book might be The Scholars Strike Back. After a long stretch in which mostly self-serving authors have dominated the field of Watergate analysis, Dobbs returns us to the commitment to truth distinguished by the historian Stanley Cutler. Cutler's The Wars of Watergate remains unsurpassed in Watergate historiography in terms of comprehensiveness, interpretation, judgment, and writing. Dobbs, who admires and credits Cutler, wisely tries not to cover the same ground, but instead, in a creative new way, to build on the formidable foundation that Cutler began. It should be made clear that by scholars I am not speaking solely of academics such as Cutler. I use the term more colloquially to refer to those who prioritize the search for truth regarding motivation, complicity, and historical significance, regardless of from what profession or background the writer might hail. This kind of scholar must believe in the ideal of truth and come close to achieving it. By that measure, and whatever their intentions, the few successful scholarly truth-tellers since 2000 would include such writers as the investigative journalist Max Holland, with his expose of the ambitions of Mark Felt, Leak, the Watergate participant John W. Deems, The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It, Rick Perlstein's Nixon Land, prosecuting attorney Jill Weinbank's new book, The Watergate Girl, journalist Fred Emery's Watergate, and Cutler again with his follow-up to wars, Abuse of Power, The New Nixon Tapes. I exclude Nixon biographies, many of which are excellent, because Watergate is of necessity a smaller aperture in the lens of the biographer. While some may be surprised by the inclusion of Dean on this list, more will probably be struck by the omission of Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, the latter of whom has become a one-man Watergate publishing industry with at least five books so far on the subject. For whatever reasons, however, truth-telling largely describes the two forays into the field of the repentant and talented Dean. While Woodward's five published paeans to journalistic heroism largely failed to live up to the standard. The principal problem with Woodward's books is that they fail to credit the immense and greater importance of institutions other than the media for uncovering the Watergate scandal and achieving whatever justice can be claimed to have been wrung from it. On the altar of burnishing the legend that Watergate would have gone unavenged without the Washington Post, a conceit that had originated with all the president's men, Woodward often sacrifices the weight of evidence in his judgment not only of himself and his colleagues, 
but of such pivotal figures as Mark Felt, Deep Throat. Because the orbits of Woodward and Felt crossed, each working with the other, Woodward's Felt must be as Simon pure in his motives as the portrait of Woodward himself. Felt's importance to the uncovering of the scandal must have been no less vast. Woodward and his journalistic hagiographers credit few in the court system or inside the government for helping bring the president's men to bay. Virtually no mention is made of Felt's feverish ambition to win the war of the FBI succession through leaks damaging to his rival L. Patrick Gray. These leaks and intentions were no secret at the time to Nixon himself, but they must continue to be secrets to Woodward's readers. The problem with the self-congratulatory books of the likes of Woodward is that they are largely exaggerated, if not inaccurate. Put differently, the point is not that the courts and some of Nixon's own men, rather than the journalists, were heroic. They absolutely were not. But that history rarely includes acts of real heroism, and its chroniclers should not, as Woodward does, go out of their way to seek them out in the form of journalists or anyone else. Simply put, the actions of certain insiders, many of them tainted, were pivotal for the unraveling of the scandal and almost certainly unconnected in the slightest with the Woodstein articles. To greater and lesser degrees, James McCord, Alexander Butterfield, L. Patrick Gray, John Dean, Jeb Magruder, eventually, Gordon Strawn, Elliot Richardson, William Ruckelshaus, and others in the Nixon administration all played important roles in cracking a case many, but not all of them, had helped to create in the first place. If one does a thought experiment in which the testimonies of these men suddenly disappear, the question is where would Woodstein's stories have led? That question is unanswerable, but we do know what caused these pivotal actors in the scandal to become witnesses against it, the courts and the American system of justice. James McCord did not confess his crimes because of the newspapers, but because Judge John J. Sirica threatened him with decades of prison time if he did not speak out regarding what he knew. A mad scramble among the conspirators to avoid being the last person to go to the prosecutors, pleading for less prison time, ensued, providing more evidence for the courts and the Senate Watergate panel. Woodward and Bernstein did not pry the most important tapes loose from Nixon's cold hands. The Supreme Court did that in July 1974. Dobbs views Watergate from a refreshingly new perspective. While he catalogs the Nixon crimes in full and their attendant cast of characters and clearly summarizes all of the watershed incidents that led to Nixon's resignation, he quickly disposes of these matters before getting to the real business of the book. Like a fly on the wall of every space the conspirators operated, from Nixon's EOB office to Air Force One, he examines what it was like, especially for Nixon, to plot, sweat, and generally live through Watergate for the 100 days between his 1973 inauguration and the televised Senate hearings and Alexander Butterfield's revelations of the tapes. Often a novelist's conceit, the omniscient observer becomes available to the Watergate scholar 
because of the sheer volume of memoirs, testimonies under oath, and, of course, the hundreds of hours of Nixon's voice-operated tapes that almost continuously documented this event as no other. Given this opportunity, it is surprising that Dobbs is the first to narrow his frame to a select period of time within the larger time frame of the scandal, so that he could bring that limited but pivotal time back to life. But with so many of Watergate's twists and turns by now well chronicled, Dobbs' focus, Dobbs's focus appears well-timed. Dobbs reminds us that Watergate, like every other unfolding episode, was not lived as a temporal sweep of time, the so-called period or artificial block of time favored by historians. It was lived day to day by actors who had other things on their mind than Watergate competing for their attention. Dobbs's Nixon was unable to anticipate the full danger he was in before March 1973, after which there was no chance he could survive the affair. His presidency was so strongly welded in his mind to the national interest, and he was so attracted to the concept of the imperial presidency, that he could not imagine that the cover-up of the Watergate break-in, or the plumber's break-in of the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, represented a serious danger to him in any but a political sense. Nixon knew that he could not be tied to the Watergate break-in, probably because he had no prior knowledge of it. Why then, in June 1972, did he not announce the White House plumber's involvement the moment he knew of it and win accolades for at least halting rogue elements in his administration? The political repercussions would have cut both ways, probably neutralizing their collective impact on the election. There would have been no cover-up to conceal. Dobbs shows that Nixon's fate was inextricably tied to the fact that in June 1972 he could not crack down on the instigators of the Watergate break-in without risking exposure of his plumber's actions in the Ellsberg break-in in 1971. Without Watergate, the Ellsberg affair would have remained secret. Without the Ellsberg break-in, he could have washed his hands of Watergate. Together, they spelled too great a risk politically to confront, at least in Nixon's mind. It was solely a political judgment. He never questioned a president's constitutional right to define the limits of his own authority. Nixon's actions in the second term's first hundred days, Dobbs's focus, showcased the ideological straitjacket he had woven around himself. Politics receded as a ground for change since he was safely elected, because as president he could have done nothing wrong, and because crises were predictable in his mind, not cause for alarm. When John Dean met with him on March 21st and told him that the hush money payments must stop, Nixon merely asked him how much money was needed now to buy the burglar's silence. When told it would be perhaps a million dollars or more, Nixon compounded the cover-up, with the tapes rolling, by responding that the money could be raised. What we see with Dobbs's close-in focus is the step-by-step groupthink that emerged those days within the inner White House circle of Nixon, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman. 
It was a groupthink that immobilized them from taking any new radical course that might have staved off impeachment, or at least have leavened the harsh judgment of history. Twenty minutes after suggesting the raising of a million dollars of hush money, Nixon told Dean on a different subject that it would be wrong to pardon Charles Colson before the end of the year. Yet both Nixon and Haldeman, who had taken careful notes of this taped conversation, deluded themselves into thinking and reassuring each other that Nixon had followed up his comment about the million dollars with the caveat that it would be wrong. In this way, they soothed one another about the state of Nixon's exposure, allowing it to continue further. Nixon's own thinking about Watergate lurched from alarm to apathy. Dobbs shows that Nixon had built a protective cocoon against anxiety, consisting of regular exposure to the dismissals of the matter's importance by the always reassuring B.B. Rebozo and Robert Aplinow, and trips to see one or the other in Key Biscayne or San Clemente. If those mechanisms failed, Nixon relied on long walks on the beach or solitary time on one of his friend's yachts, where he was guaranteed time alone with his thoughts. While Haldeman and Ehrlichman tried to remove themselves mentally from the crisis by rewriting in their minds their past conversations and actions, and Dean did so by going to the prosecutors, Nixon relied doggedly on a fantasy that no one else shared. He clung to the view that the Watergate burglary, not the cover-up, concerned the prosecutors, and that he was legally innocent of the former, while well within his rights in the Ellsberg affair. Somehow he managed to convince himself that his calculated deployments of national security were both tactical and true. Dobbs is not successful in explaining how this most savvy and crafty of politicians suddenly saw through his own hubris and self-destructive rage on the day he left the presidency after failing to come to grips with them when it counted and when his presidency might still have been saved. How could he have clung so long to the absurd notion that his every power was royal and his every crisis survivable? No matter how many hours of tape recordings captured Nixon's words or how many writers take his measure, King Richard is another reminder that the political suicide of this imperial president may never be fully explained.